0: within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, my guests are Beth Gutzler and Maisha Johnson, environmental justice organizers for Metropolitan Congregations United. And today we're gonna get an update on what the Environmental Justice Task Force has been up to and what's coming up this fall. So welcome, and thanks for joining us. Maisha, let's start with you. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the new position. Uh, So how did you come to this position? And what are you most passionate about when it comes to environmental justice?
1: Thank you. I came into the work because I'm an impacted member, um, an impacted resident, an impacted St. Louisan. Um, when I first moved here in 2009, I recognized that there were a lot of disparities in that I was living in, such as housing, lack of um, living wage jobs. Um, it was kind of like a food desert. We had to go outside the community to you know, get um, nutrient foods and healthy foods, um, a lot of corner stores that was overcharging for the small things that uh, needed, and started having conversations with community members on um, my thoughts and feelings around all of that, and um, Sonny Hutton introduced me into organizing and we started organizing um, around housing issues in our community and formed um, out of the SEC program with Dutchtown South, formed Homes for All and went to a training in Atlanta and learned what it was like to organize around housing and how to, you know, use folks' stories and vo- voices to um, Speak of change and what that change looks like, and by engaging with community members, we also form um, Southside Form State Street Tenant Resistance, which is formerly Southside Tenant Union, and um, engaging the members to be part of the conversation on what the solution could be to. What I call environmental racism that shows up in their community, because um, it's the air quality, it's the buildings that we live in it's the you know lack of healthy foods, the lack of um, good education shows up in so many spaces in black and brown communities, so I felt that it was important that we educate our folks on what the change could look like and have them bring them to be part of the conversation on what it looks like in their community and how they want to see it.
0: It sounds like you went from, t- tell me about that change in you from being a person who's been affected by these things to organizing. What, what was that sort of switch that flipped for you and how did that feel?
1: The flip for me was um, when I started giving pushback on the landlords in the spaces that I was in. And I was seeing, I seen that I could navigate it with a little um, legal help. And the victory, when that victory was won, when the judge said, you don't owe anything, you know, held the landlord accountable for the way his um, building was being represented. Yeah, I, I felt power and it, it, it was amazing. And You know, as I started to help community members on navigating it, just as I did, and I seen the excitement and they they will come and say, thank you, Miss Maisha. And I'm like, yo, I gave you the tools. You did that yourself. So congratulations (laughs) and step it into your power.
0: Okay, great. So, Beth, let's talk a little bit about what uh, MCU is up to this past July. We had an event at McKinley Bridge in St. Louis. Recap that event for us. What happened? How did things go? What did we learn? Where are we going next?
2: Yeah, so the um, environmental justice work at MCU um, it was really starting to build a base. You know, We had had our first um, public Zoom, almost a webinar-type session um, in the spring and realized that we want to do more. We wanna do more than just talk about things. We want to come together and show um, our expanded region uh, that this work is something that is gonna be impactful and it's gonna be the beginning of environmental justice change in St. Louis. So we created what was called the Air Quality Bridge Rally. It was held on July 24th. And it included partners, not just from MCU, but also our sister organizing, um, UCM on the Illinois side, Sierra Club. Um, We had partners um, who supported in multiple ways, Um, Earth Day 365. And we created almost um, more than just a a rally. You know, a rally for some of those listening probably already know, but for others, it might be new where, you know, we had speakers who gave their own stories around air quality. We had um, supporters who came out, um, of leg- elected officials who want to see environmental justice change. And it also gave it a place um, outside, even though it was warm, we had 100, uh, 125, 150 people um, actually turn out to uh, act, talk to reporters, um, sh- protest, and walk across the bridge as a symbol of our unification around this movement um, to change the environmental inequities of St. Louis.
0: And one of the things that just impressed me was was sort of the broad connections that that we had showing up. It wasn't just MCU. It was it was so neat to see the the variety of groups showing up that day. Uh, was was that expected or, or was it a pleasant surprise? Uh, the, the numbers that
2: we saw? Well, I think it was a reflection of our diversity um, in networking diversity and the impacted people because this is shared air, shared water. It does not have boundaries. It is not based upon your city. The things that affect, um, unfortunately, certain communities more than others may not even be started in that community. It could be wind drift. It could be the decisions made by people you know, years ago that are affecting a current community. And so this type of um, work does attract a diverse base of people who actually see the large um, need that we have to correct these things.
0: Uh, And that leads me into my next question about air quality um, and the need for more air quality monitors. So uh, tell us about that program and what are we looking to, to learn with those tools?
2: So we are in the beginning steps of creating a community-based air quality program, air quality monitoring program to be specific. And this is the collaboration of multiple um, different organizations. There's WashU, there's the Nature Conservancy, Um, we're getting education from the Sierra Club, Um, and we're continuing to work directly with multiple people. But The air quality monitoring program is different because we want the data and the monitors to be held within congregations. Our hope is to have these air quality monitors at least for a period of time in the zip codes that are most susceptible to hospitalization of allergy and asthma that we saw in the report from the Washington Environmental Racism Report. We might expand that to those congregations that MCU works with that are also near highways and other things that concern those communities. But this is different because they will actually not not be limited to where we communicate the data. You know, these monitors will not be turned off by government officials. This data will not be skewed so that it makes somebody look good. This is going to be shared with us through Jay Turner's lab and his associates in a way that we'll understand what it means. We don't know exactly what we're going to find yet. We don't even know exactly how these congregations want to react to what we do find. But the idea is there to allow for community-based air monitoring as a new way of taking control of what is out there and trying to respond to it.
0: Okay, great. So, so I want to recap that because this sounds almost revolutionary to me. Is that these monitors are not going to be something that the city does? It's not going to be something uh, you know the EPA does. This is this is the community doing the monitoring themselves, correct?
2: Yeah, and it's not just the the lower, um, more affordable monitors that you know a congregation who's really focused on sustainability and environmental issues might want to purchase which is great and wonderful, but these are actually from WashU. The other parts of the monitoring is on loan from the EPA, which will be telling the communities about not just what we call PM or particulate matter 10 that you can see that diesel exposure um, from a truck that you can see, but it'll be looking at other particulate matters that are smaller and actually create more damage different gases beyond ozone, which is what we see on our DNR website right now, and what you might see as you're driving down in the yellow or the red or the green communications, this is going to give us a new level of information.
0: Okay. And are we in a position right now where we're looking for congregations who might be interested in participating in this?
2: Well, we are in the works of uh, looking to finalize grant funding we can start this program with or without grant funding if a congregation is interested in participating and has the ability to have an external outlet and afford a small portion of electricity. So we are still in recruitment for those organizations that would be help, help us to test the program and establish the program. But unfortunately, as in all the work that we do around social justice, Um, and environmental justice, some of the most impacted communities may not even have an external outlet on their congregation. And so we've been working um, closely with our grant funders to try to secure a stipend for those types of um, impacted communities.
0: What does it mean that this data will be in the hands of the community and, and, and what can they then do when they see a problem happening?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So as for being in the hands of the community, um, it'll be interpreted and provided an educational success session. We hope to even have um, not just that session, but some online tools. We've uh, created some different things that we're trying to put in place so that you'll be online access to every day. But what we're really looking for is that these communities will take the data and the experience and not just share them with their congregation, share them with their neighborhood and not just educate or advocate, but actually try to get policy change. So it may be, uh, I think actually the latest idea around policy change came from someone um, stating that it would be extremely difficult to change the procedures for demolition, right? To uh, require those people that are doing demolishing to monitor the air. But it might be a little bit easier to at least request them to let people know 30 days in advance there's going to be a demolition so that our group or other groups might be able to put an air monitor in place that at least people are aware of what day that's going to happen if they want to use a mask and have asthma. So putting a requirement like that where they have to just give notice might be a policy change that congregations are going to want to advocate for if we see. And that there's more, there's, and hopefully there's going to be lots of brainstorming that happens um, from this, act, this project, but um, that's just one example of a type of policy change that might be winna- what we call winnable.
0: Maisha, can you talk about the importance of, of having, this, having knowledge like this when it comes to organizing and when it comes to advocating? Um, it, it sounds like this is a first step.
1: Well, the importance of advocating around this is to show the lack of um, air quality in a living space and around the home. There's many things in the air as best you know, talked about the particles in the air, the pollution that comes from drugs, the the demolition around them, also their living space. It's important that they know where these things are um, happening, the cause, and um, that gives them more of a direct um, path to focus on who to hold accountable. And when having conversations with those who are uh, responsible for the pollution that is in the cities and that the children and these families have to breathe. We often, um, asthma and respiratory is a huge issue um, in these communities due to the fact of um, old buildings that they're living in. And that I say that housing, you know, is a part where that can organize around the work because the old buildings often have lead in them, you know, and the electricity um, isn't, the electrical wiring isn't um, efficient and it causes the Amherst bill high. If you look at the it, if you compare a bill from a person in the three one one eight zip code compared to the Maryland Heights zip code, it is totally different. Even Webster grows. it's like two three hundred dollars. There's a two three hundred dollar difference. I mean, if these folks are already to survive and live especially through this pandemic with all the extra things that, you know, they have the extra precautions they have to take to survive. A $300 light bill is going to be hard to keep up. And the folks that's in subsidized housing in section eight, when their utilities get cut off, they lose their voucher. So that's displacing a family that's already having, um, issues, economic issues, um, you know, the lack of resources and a utility bill from being too high in a space where there's um, not good wiring, not many sockets that they can use. Um, you know, it's, it's hot. It's a heat desert right now in St. Louis. So, Folks are buying air conditioning and fans to keep cool. But if they're not able to run them, how are they to be comfortable in the space that they're living? And then the space that they're living is becoming expensive because of the um, rate hike Ameren has given, which also could lead to them being homeless due to the fact they cannot keep up with their Ameren bill. Or you know their utilities, and that causes them to lose their voucher.
0: Okay, great. And it, that was an interesting stat there that you said that that electrical electric bills can actually be higher in six three one one eight than in a place like Webster Groves. And I assume we're talking about in smaller buildings in six three one one eight versus the larger buildings in in a more affluent community. Like, like Webster Grove. So there's more than just the, the size and space, but also sort of the insulation and the construction that needs to be taken care of too, in order to make those homes more affordable.
1: When you hit on that, I've compared my bill to others that live in that area. And as I said, there was a two to $300 difference. And there was also extra taxes put on hmm. to my bill than the others.
0: So, so where the zip code you live in will will carry with it extra expenses uh, that, that we don't even necessarily know about because we don't do this comparison on a regular basis. So speaking of Amron Electric, Beth, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a big federal court decision saying that Amron Electric is in violation of the Clean Air Act and must install pollution control technology at their Jefferson County coal plant in order to become compliant. So what does this mean for us average Missourians?
2: So having the monitors um, required um, to be in place in these types of settings allow for the responsibility and set the way for accountability. So that's what's most important is that we need to know what is in our air, how it'll affect our health. And requiring the monitors is the only way for us to do that. Unfortunately, right now, it looks like there might be a chance that this could have a negative impact short-term because it, it's possible that Ameren might push those charges of the monitor monitoring device and those expenses onto the consumer. But in the long-term, It is a great step to start to hold places like Amarin accountable for what they're putting in our air. Now, unfortunately, when we're talking about coal fired electric plants or other situations, is that actual stopping of that pollution is long term. And so there are going to be lots of people that are going to have health effects in between now and when that plant might actually close in 2050. But with this monitoring, health departments, city departments will be able to connect the dots between what is actually being put in the air and reported and the deaths and the asthma that is actually occurring around them. And that might help us in the state of Missouri to accelerate the closure or or actually ask for the closure of these things sooner. So the monitors are step one in that work.
0: So what other activities does the Environmental Justice Task Force have in the works for this fall?
1: So working on getting um, the air monitors and to 12 congregations, we've have 10, more, correct me if I'm wrong, Beth, and we're looking for two more. Um, I've been in conversation with a few congregations in um, South City to see if they will want to um, be in partnership it takes a little conversation, you know, more than one conversation, so they can have understanding on the care that will have taken, the placement of the monitor, you know, you know, who will come and collect the data. Once you have this conversation, some of them are in a better understanding of the importance of needing monitor in that space. But also, um, there's questioning, and you know, how do I keep up with it? Am I responsible if it is damaged? You know, and that kind of brings you know, a, a red flag for churches. But really, it the data is going to be collected um, from the students that come in and check on the monitors, and Really, we just need to use their space, their building, to um, be able to collect the particles that's in the surrounding that flows through there. And it will help us um, figure out how to push um, local entities on better serving Louisans um, in their living spaces and in the communities, as well as the congregation. We really appreciate the congregation that um, will take on this program and help us build it out.
2: Yeah, some other things we hope to be doing this fall is our first um, EJ-focused campus. Um, A campus, as we all, some of us already know, is where you actually go door to door and have real conversations with real people. So we're excited for the first time to be doing that particular activity where we ask people how they feel about environmental justice issues like air quality, illegal dumping, or if they're even aware of some of these topics. So that's exciting. Um, And then also, uh, we do have the opportunity to hire two more interns. So we had some great interns that assisted our program this summer from WashU and from UMSL. So um, that's exciting as we're doing interviews right now. And those spots are still open to support not only the Air Quality Monitoring Program, but also a benchmarking program. And that we partner with others. In some of our congregations, we'll be meeting with elected officials, um, actual legislators, or even just people in power who could possibly make this policy change. Not necessarily to ask, but to make them aware of what we're hearing, the stories we're hearing, the things that are starting, so we can create a relationship with them so that we can walk together to make this change. So we're excited to have some of our first meetings um, in a while.
0: So do you know when when you're going to be doing the canvassing yet and and, and what areas you're looking at canvassing?
2: Of course, we'd always like to work with the the communities that are most affected by allergy and asthma. But other times we do um, just like to practice the basics. So um, we've got this great program, which is called Minivan. Where we can um, work to collect the information about and keep stay connected with people that we talk to within the canvas, and so we I got a congregation hopefully in October before the weather turns. We don't I don't want to confirm the date online, but um, where we're going to practice this new software um, so that anytime we talk to somebody, we have the opportunity to stay connected with them, to follow up, and keep them involved in our work. So it should be exciting to, to get this all together by the end of October
0: okay great great that's good to hear so one of uh, and what's what's kind of fun to see is that these these same activities are happening amongst uh, several different um, uh, task forces within MCU. so the breaking the school to prison pipeline task force has been doing some canvassing specifically in the Jennings area um, and it, to sort of bring it together it it's interesting to see there, too, is that uh, the environmental concerns that folks in that neighborhood are talking about are just really, really local. And it's, it's, the, it's the vacant lots. It's, it's the buildings that are in disrepair that are abandoned and things along those lines. So environment for a lot of people is going to be just that immediate need to start off with. And, and that seems like an interesting place to start, start building that power from. Okay, and I wanted to ask, are, are there any legislative goals that that the Environmental Justice Task Force is looking at addressing in Missouri, uh, starting in 2022, in uh, the year is going to close pretty quick and, and a lot's going to start happening in January. Do you guys have any thoughts about that yet or, or still looking at things?
2: I think the thing that has come up most recently is the importance of keeping our ears and eyes open if there is possibility for taking away our ballot initiative rights here in the state of Missouri. And the way that that particular item of the ballot initiative relates to environmental justice is that that is one of our best tools in the state of Missouri to make change quickly around issues. As you said, Normally, most people think about environmental issues right around them, what's affecting them immediately. But some of the larger things that are indirectly affecting them are larger issues. And so to continue to keep that ballot initiative right will allow the opportunity to make a change on a larger scale to affect more people. And so that's what we're keeping our eye on right now.
0: And uh, Maisha, one other follow-up question I had for you, just to kind of bring it back around to your your background of working on on housing. We've we've just had um, the eviction moratorium has been uh, uh, ended nationally, and even here in St. Louis, uh, those types of programs are are running out. Are there any any programs that that you're working on right now to help folks who are facing um, uh, eviction uh, because of of lack of income because of the the, the covet crisis
1: there is uh, national funding uh, there is funding for st louis county i think uh, that there was like nine million and so far like almost seven has been put out i think they have till october to get it out um there's working groups um the uh, mutual aid group has been um, forming events, rental assistant events, help folks through the process. They're also realizing that some folks are just now getting back, you know, um, from laid off or the, you know, they lost their job, and also. Some folks weren't counting everyone in the home. They were spacing it off of the one person that had income coming in, add everyone into the equation. That will probably get them, you know, accepted into the programs that are that is helping uh, with the payout. We've been coming together in many spaces, and um, city and county, and a couple of different spaces on how to better assist and qualify the services. So we also want to make sure that we're not duplicating applications, being that when folks hear that, you know, more money is coming now, they reapply. But there are a few, um, Churches like St. Francis um, on Delora, who else, Salvation Army is assisting and a few other organizations such as Mutual Aid and um, Legal Services, EHOG, and uh, Art City Defenders. Also, there's a city app that folks can look into um, under, on the city hall website and um, see if they qualify. So there's many different spaces that they can look into to see if they qualify. Also, one has been helping the organizations to make sure that all documents are able to be implemented into the applications. But um, some of the apps, it's difficult when they try to Load the app. Their documents onto it. So there's been a place where the document documentation with the application anymore.
0: Okay. Good. Thank you very much for that information. I think that's going to wrap up our program for today. Um, are there any other um, items you want to make sure that we let our listeners know about as far as events or opportunities to participate?
1: For me, I would say that um, if you don't talk about it, well, not it. And that your voice is, holds enough power to make change.
2: And I just want to invite anybody to reach out to us and to you. We have on um, the DJ team, what's called Environmental Justice Transformative Conversations. So if you don't think environmental justice has ever affected you, or you don't have your own story, um, spending 30 minutes um, having this you know, kind of scripted conversation, but in a way, just a conversation has really helped people to pull out their own impacted stories and, and relate to the work.
0: Okay, good. So thank you, Beth Gutzler and uh, Maisha Johnson from the Environmental Justice uh, Task Force uh, for MCU. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, to learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.